When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Britain has become the first country to approve a COVID-19 vaccine. But until immunity across populations happens and COVID is a disease of the past, testing has a crucial role to play. Test, test, test. Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up, can mass testing bring infection rates down? Will rapid self-administered tests provide a solution? And <coughs> could artificial intelligence help screen for COVID-19 by listening to people's coughs? But first, an injection of hope. On December 2nd, Britain became the first country to license a fully tested COVID-19 vaccine. Less than a month ago, Pfizer and BioNTech announced that their vaccine was 95% effective. It is the fastest vaccine approval ever, and yet another milestone in the race to defeat COVID-19. Natasha Loder is our health policy editor and our chief vaccine nerd. Hello, Natasha. Hello, Ken. When will people be rolling up their sleeves and getting a jab? Well, it could be as early as December the 7th. So that's really quite quick indeed. The hospitals in Britain have been told to get ready to start vaccinating by that date. Natasha, the technology that's being used in this vaccine has not been used before for other vaccines. Should this make us a little bit wary about it or should this give us even more confidence in it? Well, I don't think we need to be too worried for a couple of reasons. One is that the technology has been tested in vaccines for over a decade. We've been trying to use mRNA vaccines to make cancer vaccines. We haven't succeeded, but that does mean that we have been putting these jabs into humans for quite a long time. I mean, I think if you combine the Moderna mRNA vaccine and the Pfizer mRNA vaccine, that's about 75,000 patients on that trial. Well, half of those people will have all had mRNA vaccines. And you don't see serious side effects. You see the normal problems that you get with vaccines. You know, you get a sore arm, you may feel tired for a day, achy, headachy, the sort of things that a bit of rest and a paracetamol can sort out. It's also worth remembering that the molecule that you're giving to people, the mRNA, is actually one that's very transient in human cells. And so I'm certainly not worried from what I've heard from the people I've been talking to. Now, the process to approve it, as well as to develop it, has been incredibly rushed. Do you expect there to be new safety concerns that crop up just because we're doing a large-scale, quote-unquote, trial, except on real people? Well, there's a sort of misunderstanding about the nature of how this development's happened. And I guess, from some perspectives, 
it does look like it's been rushed. Whereas in actual fact, the phase one, two and three trials have taken as long as they take. You can't rush these things. What's happened just now, though, is we've had a regulatory approval, which has been very quick. What's happened there has been slightly unusual, but not problematic in itself. And let me just explain. So Essentially, what the regulators have done is they've adapted their process because it's a pandemic. And what they've done is something called rolling review. And really, quite simply, that means that as and when the pharma companies have had data to share with them, they have shared that data. So the regulators have been looking at data on a kind of ongoing basis. So what's really happened is that data has been sent off as and when it arrives. And so that's meant that the regulator has had a good idea about the safety and the efficacy of this vaccine for weeks. What I do think has been slightly rushed, perhaps, in Britain is, I think, some more public dialogue about what has happened and what decisions were taken would have been useful. It's useful to contrast what the UK has just done with what the Americans and what the Europeans are planning. And they're planning public meetings where scientists can, independent scientists can ask questions, the data can be scrutinised, the EMA is also soliciting public comments as well. And so there's a lot of work going on building up public trust in the vaccine. Natasha, this seems like it's a great win for Britain to be the first one to approve the vaccine. In America, there's probably regulators who are scratching their heads saying, hey, why wasn't it us doing it first? Where do you think the geopolitics of vaccine approval is going to land? I think that Mr. Trump would have liked to have had a vaccine approval sooner. I think the FDA is being very careful and cautious, and I actually commend their approach. Although I don't think there's anything inherently wrong in what the British drug regulator has done, I do think politically, it would have been great if the government had laid the groundwork a little bit for explaining to the public what's going on. I think that one of the key factors that you have to bear in mind is that every day you do delay, there are people dying. And so that's really important. And I'm going to be watching closely in the coming days to see how people like Boris Johnson, Matt Hancock and all the British government talk about what's happened. Because I don't think it's going to be helpful at all to make it out to be like a bit of political one-upmanship at all. Do you have any sense on what the next countries to approve the vaccine will be or what the next vaccines to be approved will be? So I suspect that we will see Moderna get emergency approval next. I think the big thing that's going to happen next is a meeting in America called the Verb Pack meeting. That'll be where Americans scrutinize this Pfizer vaccine more closely. The Moderna vaccine won't be considered in America for a little bit longer. The other really interesting thing to note is that once a stringent regulatory authority such as Britain's, has given this emergency authorization, it becomes possible for the World Health Organization to allow the vaccine to be used in countries that don't have regulatory authorities. It's not clear whether the WHO is going to move on the back of the UK authorization. It may wait for the FDA to have its meetings and do it that way. So we'll have to wait and see. Natasha, thank you for being the bearer of such great news. It's been my pleasure. What a day. Now, get some sleep. I don't know. That's not going to happen.
Until vaccines become widespread around the world, testing is needed to curb contagion. There has been a debate around the potential for mass testing for COVID-19. Can widespread screening for the virus be a way to staunch the pandemic? Mass testing involves testing the entire population of a city or region or even a small country to find people who may be asymptomatic but have COVID-19 infection. Slavia Chenkova is The Economist healthcare correspondent. And the idea is that normally those people will not show up for a testing because they have no idea they're infected. But if you manage to find who they are and have them self-isolate, then you can make a difference for the course of the epidemic. In November, scientists and policymakers were closely scrutinizing Slovakia, where nearly two-thirds of the population were tested in just two weekends. Slavia, has the mass testing in Slovakia been effective in reducing the impact of the second wave there? They say that this exercise helped to bend the curve of the epidemic, so new cases declined. But their health minister has also said that perhaps more rounds of such testing will be needed, and they have planned more of them in December to keep the infection rate down. So now it really all depends on how many people actually show up for this sort of repeated testing to see whether this can be an effective strategy. And of course, there is the cost involved of using so many tests. In Britain, the northern city of Liverpool has piloted a mass testing scheme, but there have been reports in the British media about not enough people getting tested. How much of a problem is that? I spoke with Louise Kenny from the University of Liverpool, who is doing an evaluation of the testing program there. And she did acknowledge that this was one of the issues that not everybody came forward for testing. And they are trying to resolve that, encouraging people, especially those from more deprived areas, which may have higher rates of infections, to come forward for testing. We're currently working on strategies to remove perceived and actual barriers to testing by making testing as accessible as possible, and by also encouraging people to come forward for testing. I mean, one real concern, however, is that currently, if you come forward for testing, you're asymptomatic and you test positive, and you're on a zero-hours contract or very insecure employment, then there is a significant negative consequence as a result of a positive test. And we need to think through how we can actually address that, because it's important that we do. Given that, those communities that are least likely to come forward are those where community transmission tends to be highest. One way to encourage more people to undergo the COVID test is by creating an incentive and a penalty, parrots and sticks. The British government says it will hand out shopping vouchers to encourage residents of high infection areas to participate in mass testing schemes. In Slovakia, those that do not go to a mass testing center were forced to isolate for two weeks, unless they were exempt. But if they did get tested and were healthy, they could resume going to work, to shops and to restaurants within the COVID-19 restrictions. Slavia, the scheme in Liverpool was a pilot scheme, but there's some vocal opposition even to that. So some health experts are worried that this is something that has never been done before, screening the population for infection. And they worry that 
too much money is being invested in an approach that has not been evaluated, that has not been vetted as something that, you know, is proven to reduce infections. And one of the people who has raised concerns about the British government's approach is Dr. Angela Raffel at the University of Bristol. From my experience in evaluating screening programs, planning them and delivering them, all screening does a lot of harm and costs a lot of resources. And some of it does some good. But to make sure it does good is a really difficult task. So the problem in the pandemic is what you're looking for is like looking for needles in a haystack and the needles only appear transiently. So you want to find somebody when they're infectious, but they haven't yet got symptoms or someone who's infectious, but isn't going to get symptoms. And that's probably a situation that only lasts for a day, two days, at most three days. So you could test everybody and spend billions and you might find a few, but you certainly won't find them all. And you'll tell those of people falsely that they're infectious when they're not and you will miss lots of cases and create lots of false reassurance. So people who've got negative results will then be more likely to transmit the infection because they think they're in the clear. Slavia, you've been reporting on this all year long. What do you think? Is mass testing something that cities and countries should be striving towards? Well, it definitely has a role in places where outbreaks of COVID-19 are particularly severe in places like uh, university dormitories or prisons, where you may have very large outbreaks and you can easily test most people very quickly. But many people, Professor Kenny, for example, think that mass testing isn't really the answer. It's just another tool for our arsenal what we have to fight against the pandemic. What really gets the virus under control isn't testing. It's actually the adherence to really basic public health measures, good hand hygiene, face covering and social distancing. I think we've got the virus under control in Liverpool and we absolutely have. Only seven weeks ago, the community transmission of COVID was as high as more than 650 per 100,000. And as of this weekend, it's closer to 120 per 100,000. So there's been a really significant fall in COVID cases in Liverpool over the last seven weeks. And undoubtedly, what's done that is the people of Liverpool pulling together and practicing those three basic public health measures. And also now we have the additional tool of asymptomatic testing. But I think it's just that. It's an additional tool. It is not a silver bullet. It's not a golden ticket. The tests being used in Slovakia and Liverpool are lateral flow or rapid turnaround tests. They provide a result in about 15 minutes without the need to send the test kits off to a laboratory. Scientists who are skeptical about the Liverpool project worry that up to half of the cases could be missed due to inaccuracies in these types of tests. However, a recent study from researchers at the University of Colorado, Boulder, and Harvard found that testing half of the population weekly with rapid tests would reduce the virus so that it was almost eliminated within weeks, even if those tests are significantly less sensitive and thus less accurate than the gold standard clinical tests. The team used mathematical models to forecast the impact of screening with different kinds of tests on different scenarios. It showed that testing with rapid but less accurate kits was actually better than with the standard method. Bruce Tromberg is the director of the U.S. National Institute of Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering. If you do have this multi-day turnaround and you're just getting infected, 
If you don't modify what you're doing, if you don't immediately quarantine and you're just getting infected, the way the virus expands, the increase of viral load in you, you'll in those two days become an asymptomatic spreader. So what's the point if you don't get it back immediately? The other thing that's not absolutely proved is that if you tested everybody in their homes, you would actually break the chain of transmission. We believe that to be true. So if you gave everyone a lateral flow assay test and said, test yourself as much as possible and then respond appropriately, there will be false positives and there will be false negatives. But the idea is that if you could test yourself with sufficient frequency so that maybe on day one, you have a false result, but if you're getting sick and the virus is increasing by day two or day three, you're going to get a very good result that is a measure of your infectiousness. And that's the idea behind that concept. Slavea, how do these rapid tests compare to the lab-based ones that we've had since early on in the pandemic? So early on in the pandemic, all we had were the PCR tests, which require laboratories. They need a couple of hours to process. People may not get their results for days. The rapid tests, which are in use for the most part now, are antigen tests. So they are looking for proteins that the virus releases when it replicates during infection, which is different than what a PCR test does. A PCR test is very sensitive. It can detect traces of the genetic sequence of the virus, so it can pick up even a very, very small amount of infection, whereas the antigen tests would pick up an infection only when there is a lot of virus around. For that reason, antigen tests do miss lots of infections that a PCR test will catch. So even the best antigen tests may miss something like 25% of infections. Fast turnaround tests are becoming more accessible. Last week, American regulators authorized the first rapid self-testing version. Is this a breakthrough? There has definitely been a lot of progress on the technology side. PCR testing, which uses laboratories and quite sophisticated machines, is becoming part of smaller devices. I spoke with Bruce Trumberg from the National Institute of Health about this test. I think getting tests into the home will be game changers. To be clear, there are home approvals for test kits. So you can get a kit at home and do self-sampling and then send it back in the mail when it goes to a laboratory. So those are already out there. There are several of them. But this is unique in that it's the entire device that's approved for home use. One of the things that's important to point out, you need to have a prescription from a physician to be able to use it. And it is indicated for people who have symptoms. So it's not necessarily designed from its label to be used for asymptomatic individuals or for screening or surveillance of large populations. But nevertheless, it's very exciting. It's a PCR assay where you take a swab and essentially put it into a small liquid container and put that liquid container into a device. So it has excellent sensitivity and it's pretty fast. I think it's around $50 a test, which is probably at the high end if we're looking for widespread surveillance and screening. But we'll have to see how the market reacts to that price point. It's the first one that's out there. And I'm very confident that there are many, many others that will be coming forward, both in the PCR format as well as in the viral antigen format. 
Some health academics in America have talked about people doing tests at home to decide, for example, whether they should go and see elderly relatives, even if they have no symptoms, with very rapid antigen tests that are very cheap and they can just buy in bulk. Do you think that's ever going to happen? Absolutely. I think within a few months, we'll see hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of those tests available per day, because as they become better and better, and there are several that are really excellent performing assays, they will be scaled in terms of their ability to manufacture, and they're not that expensive from the cost of materials. Slavea, how do you expect testing technology to continue to change? There's a lot of innovation coming down the pipeline, and uh, Bruce Tromberg had some really exciting examples. There's been enormous innovation, which has brought out new chemistries like CRISPR, new detection strategies like molecular beacons and quantum dots, new optoelectronic readout devices that are miniaturized and integrated with smartphones. Not that many people are perhaps tracking this, but there are exhaled breath assays that are measuring volatile organic compounds. There's so many exciting things that are happening that are what I would say more or less standard technologies that have been used in research labs, but the barrier to their commercialization has been high until now because there's a big market that's driving this. And as these platforms continue to grow and expand and we get through this pandemic, there will be a natural repurposing and movement of these platforms into being able to be responsive to other infectious diseases slower-moving diseases like cancer, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, metabolic disease. And we'll see increasingly, we're at this transition point right now in a pandemic in this particular crisis. And hopefully, we'll be able to convert a lot of these advances into stable technologies that will persist and help us both in medicine as well as in public health. Slavea Chenkova, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. For more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. This week, you can find reporting on the growth of digital health and a fabulous by-invitation essay by Catherine Milkman on how behavioral science can boost the acceptance of a vaccine. To take out a subscription at the most attractive rate, just go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. And don't forget to tell them, Ken sent you. Coming up, Can the sound of my cough be used to diagnose COVID-19? Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. COVID-19 testing technology has improved enormously over the past 11 months. One of the most exciting areas of research has been in identifying proxies for the disease, looking for traits and signifiers that are easier, cheaper, and faster to check. 
Researchers at MIT have published initial results of a system that uses artificial intelligence to listen to the sound of coughs. <coughs> One of those coughs comes from a person who has COVID, and the other doesn't. Could you tell which was which? Me neither, but with the right training, an AI algorithm may be able to. We looked at which piece of the cough is important, and it turns out to our surprise that when you go <gasps> at the beginning of the cough, almost before you cough, your vocal cords are already throwing some sounds. Brian Supriana is the director of the AutoID Lab at MIT. His team believes this technology could be used to accelerate and streamline existing testing systems. And then when you expel the air, that there's another piece of information that you get. And there's things like, mm, <clears throat> there's many sounds we make that seem to be very innate to us and to how we are as humans and how we learn language. Previous research had already shown that you can look for tuberculosis, bronchitis. And so there is a lot of information. So how does the artificial intelligence work? It basically takes four biomarkers. A biomarker is any sort of number you can associate to a biological system, uh, like temperature, for example, or pressure. And here we are saying that you cough in a given intonation, and that that intonation is a vector of a thousand numbers. We are hoping we can come up with a bunch of acoustic biomarkers that work across many conditions, not just COVID, but also pneumonia, asthma, Alzheimer's, and many other conditions. So what did you use to train the AI model so that it could identify if a person has COVID or not based on these markers? We used four different databases of a sound, so a huge database of audiobooks, the, the largest available. And then we use this uh, actor's database and a couple of others. And then to determine whether a given cough is COVID or not, we crowdsource what we believe is uh, the largest ever crowdsourced voice health database, over 100,000 coughs. We started recording just on the website. People can go to opensigma.mit.edu and we're still recording. And we're getting more and more samples the more we get more fine-tuning we can do in the algorithms. But you must have had the situation where someone disclosed to themselves as non-COVID because they didn't have any symptoms, yet you could identify that actually when you were trying to label the data that it fit into the category of a COVID patient. And then you, they had to be tested in which you could validate that your prediction was correct. Well, that's that's actually an excellent question. And we have a second round of sourcing that's coming from... Uh, various hospitals in different countries, and we can do that kind of analysis very well. But what we did in the crowdsourcing is we asked if people had an official test and how many days ago they, they did have it. If you look at the official test, that's where we get 100%. If you look at people that didn't have a test, there are necessarily some asymptomatics that don't think they have it. And actually, that's one of the reasons why we believe when you look at the database and you look at people that claim they didn't have it, some have it, and our albums are not as precise there. So how precise is this technique? What's amazing, Ken, is, you know, you get 100% 
of the positives. And then we get some uh, false positives. We don't get false negatives. So we get some people that the system thinks they have COVID and the PCR test says they don't. That could be because the PCR test is not well done. It could be because our system picks up COVID before the PCR tests, or it could be a genuine mistake of the algorithm. We don't really know. Okay, 100% is a big round number. Can you be a bit more granular about the findings? Another way to look at the results of the algorithm is that we detect everyone that has COVID, but if you don't have COVID, we may make a mistake. There's about 17% of people that don't have COVID that turn out in terms of the algorithm to have COVID. So in a way, to enter into a restaurant, this would be ideal because the people that the algorithm says don't have COVID certainly don't have it and they're safe to go in. But if it says they have COVID, they may not, which, you know, may be a bit uh, uh, sad if you don't have it and you have to get a PCR. But that's how the algorithm works. Now, at this stage, it's just research. Do you have plans to roll it out? Yes. So MIT is now in in the process of sort of uh, giving licenses. And we think that this can be a pre-screening tool. That's one possible use. Another one, it may be, you know, in factories or in schools and for group tests. And we also believe that once a government approves its use, we will get a lot more recordings, tens of millions of cops and the algorithms will be a lot better. So do you ever expect a future in which we might be saying, Alexa, do I have COVID? Oh, absolutely. And actually, we're talking to Amazon and many other big manufacturers about how that could happen because it's, again, more of a regulatory issue, but also with Alzheimer and dementia, early signs and think about a future where pandemics are almost detected before people know and they can be tracked just via voice biomarkers. I can see that happening very soon, actually. This is really exciting. Brian, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. Thank you very much. Now, listeners will surely want to know if my coughs earlier in the show can be analyzed to see if I have COVID or not. And I want to know. And my family wants to know. And my colleagues want to know. And the answer is... Brian Subriana at MIT is not permitted to tell me. Under the terms of research, he is not allowed to use this technique in practice because it's not approved for use. If this research passes scrutiny and gets approved, it could be turned into an app that provides results in seconds from tests done at home at basically zero cost. But for now, it's still research in the lab and academic papers, so other scholars can critique it and see if the findings are sound when they go from the training data to real-world environments. Thank you for listening to Babbage. And there's been more science on Economist Radio this week. Make sure you check out Tuesday's episode of The Intelligence, our daily current affairs podcast for the latest on unraveling the mystery of protein folding, also using artificial intelligence from DeepMind. And while you're with us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist.
Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.